Welcome to Encounter Grace, where we come face-to-face with God's work in the world for our good. Join host Jason McKnight as we explore practical issues of community, theology, and leadership in everyday life. Welcome. We're so glad you're with us. Uh, I'm Jason McKnight. I'm here in the studio with Ben Hendricks. Ben, good to be with you. Always a pleasure. And um, also to my left is Matt Sorens from Illinois. Yes. And we're so glad you're here all the way from Illinois. What brings you from Illinois? <laughs> yeah, uh, I've been in North Carolina the last two days. Uh, this is my third uh, church I've visited and doing a few different events in different parts of the state. And so you're a magician, a traveling comedian and a magician. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes it's three, three shows a day. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, here's what we're talking about today. And if you're just tuning in with Encounter Grace, um, the world today is filled with refugees. The country of America is filled with immigrants. What do we do about it? How do we think about it as believers when we think of refugees around the world? Matt, you told us before, we just had a luncheon here, you told us a hundred million refugees around the world, which means displaced outside of their country. And that means, or not that means, but then you say, and another 50 million within their countries, which, which isn't Actually, refugees technically. The 100 million includes those 50 million. Oh, it does include. But okay. still, we're talking about numbers that most of us don't know what to do with in our minds. No, it's, it's bigger than Kinston. numbers of people. Far bigger than <laughs> Kinston, yeah. yeah. I mean, 100 million people left their home, outside of their home. And then when we get to immigration, we're, uh, we live in the South and we live in the uh, agriculture belt. And so we see immigrants in our fields, in our factories. And um, we understand there are 40 or 45 million people in our country who were born in other countries, and 11 million of those, give or take, are undocumented. So legal and then also illegal. And how do we think about that as believers? So we're just going to have a fun conversation, and um, we want to get Matt talking. And I wonder what question we should ask you first. That's great. Oh, that's a hard question. Uh, It is a hard question. Where do we start? Uh, You know, I think... Uh, where I would start, where I usually try to start whenever I'm interacting with a church, is actually to start with the Bible. Because I, it, precisely because I think, even though we're Christians and we would all affirm, like, this, we think about issues from a biblical perspective, most conversations around immigration start with policy or, great. you know, cultural adjustment questions or even just the practical Personal questions plight. of, like, how do I help this neighbor? All of which are good questions. And what we got to get to, but we sometimes skip over. How do we think about this as Christians? Mm-hmm. And if we skip over that to start, we sometimes never come back to it. Um, right. We just think about this as you know a societal issue, an economic issue, political issue. It's all those things, but it's also a profoundly biblical issue. Mm. And that's actually what's led you into the role you have at World Relief, which is U.S. Director for Church Mobilization at World Relief. Tell us that and then get us into the Bible. Sure. Yeah. So World Relief's mission around the world, whether in the U.S. or in Africa or Cambodia or wherever, is to empower local churches to serve the vulnerable. Mm. Uh, And in the U.S., what we have primarily, the way we've lived out that mission for more than 40 years now is through refugee resettlement and by serving other immigrants. Uh, But not by doing so on our own, Mm -hmm. but actually bringing churches into that process. So in all the communities where, where we operate, um, we're working with local church partners. So when a refugee lands at the airport, we as an organization work with the government to know that they're arriving. We've affirmed we can help this family. But we don't want just our staff to pick them up. We want a team from a local church right. to pick mm-hmm. them up. Uh, so when that comes to the Bible, and frankly, especially in the last few years, I think we used to presume that churches sort of recognize this as a good Christian thing to do. 
and many churches certainly have for a long time, and we've never lacked for church partners. And but, I mean, the church I grew up in in Montreal, uh, you were mentioning the Vietnamese, yeah. like the boat people crisis. Maybe you're not allowed to say that these days, but we we accepted and adopted and embraced yes. several, I mean, like half a dozen yes. uh, in our little church in Montreal. And, and that was World Relief's origin story. It's not globally, but in the U.S. in terms of refugee settlement, it started with that Vietnamese refugee mm-hmm. crisis. Yeah. Um, and, and with local churches mm-hmm. all over the country who stepped up and said, we could help a family or we could help two families. And... I think that there's a lot of churches who have that memory and they hear refugee and they think that's this great thing the church can do and look how wonderful that family is doing 30, 40 years later. Right. And yet there's others who heard something on television or saw something on social media and they hear refugee and they think something's scary. Hmm. And we realized that, I mean, very frankly, um, in 2018, there was a poll uh, from Pew Research Center, which I don't doubt their methodology, but they asked, does the U.S. have a responsibility to accept refugees? And only 25% of white evangelical Christians, which is my category, said yes. Hmm. Which was kind of a gut punch for us at World Relief. Not that we only want to work with white evangelical Christians. That happens to be the right. political sure. category that sure. Pew was using for that poll. Um, but we've worked with mostly white evangelical Christians for a really long time. And it felt like we'd sort of lost a big part of the church hmm. that saw what we did as a part of you know, a legitimate ministry driven by the Bible. And that really, I mean, I'd already been doing this to some extent, but it really doubled down for me. We need to do a better job, not just of equipping churches of like the how of refugee ministry, like here's the cultural do's and don'ts when you're working with the Burmese or the Iraqis or the Afghans, but the why. Like why as Christians should we care about refugees beyond just a sort of generic humanitarian impulse? Because we have very specific biblical instructions uh, about loving our neighbors Unless we want to narrowly define who our neighbor is, the story of the Good Samaritan makes pretty clear that your neighbor could be a vulnerable traveler of a different ethnicity and religion. I mean, I mean, Ben led us into that this summer in the parables. Yeah. He, he preached the, the Good Samaritan and he said, God redefines your neighbor in terms of need. Yes. And as you said earlier, no caveats. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, I'll, I just I often will mention this when I speak, but that caveat, I think people will then say, well, but what if this isn't safe? And there's kind of two responses to that. One, there's nothing in that Good Samaritan story that says that you should only love your neighbor if it's safe. It wasn't safe for the Samaritan to stop on a dangerous road and help that man beaten on the side of the road. But two, it's really safe in the U.S. context. I'm not, you know, we're not the church in Jordan or in Lebanon where they don't necessarily have the same vetting capacity at that border crossing point. At least specifically talk about refugee resettlement. So these are individuals who are identified by the U.S. government, by the State Department overseas. They're vetted by the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, It's a very, very small share of the world's refugees. They've got more than 30 million refugees in the world. And last year, the United States accepted about 25,000. So... I'm not a mathematician, but that's a very small fraction of 1%. But I play one on TV. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And they, uh, you know, so it's Mm. super safe. There's a very strong vetting process. And yet, even if there wasn't, I would argue that biblically, our call is to love our neighbors Mm. and to do so even sacrificially. Not just a question of safety, but, well, is this in my economic interest? Most economists think that it probably is. Give refugees a decade or two, and they're contributing more than they're receiving. But even if that wasn't the case, you know, we don't know if the Good Samaritan headed out, finished that story ahead or behind financially, Mm -hmm. probably behind because he helped Mm -hmm. someone out of his own pocketbook. Mm -hmm. We never hear the rest of the story and he got repaid three times over. Maybe he did, but that's not part of Luke 10. (laughs) And yet it is the model of what it looks like to love our neighbors as ourselves, which we're told is part of the greatest commandment that summarizes all the rest of the law and the prophets. I do wonder, uh, and I was just thinking this because I'm I'm just kind of piecing stuff together, just as you're saying it, like 
25% is terrifyingly low. Well, like from this study from uh, Pew, right? Mm-hmm. Of white evangelicals, I think is what you said, that 25% see this as a need. And what I wonder is, so we, we have that stat, and then we have, uh, I mean, I think you're right. Like so many people view this through the lens of safety as like, well, maybe we need to pull away because it's probably not safe. How much of that low number do you think is based right on kind of a rise in our culture on safety? Yeah. So the other stat I can share with you, and it's good news, fresh off the presses, last week we released a new study. So this is from LifeWay Research, so not exactly the same question, but we asked a very similar question. Do you believe the U.S. has a moral responsibility to receive refugees? And then we define what that is. People, which U.S. law defines as people who've fled persecution for reasons such as their race, religion, or political opinion. Uh, 70% of evangelicals, including 68% of white evangelicals, said they agreed with that. So that's actually a crazy swing. You don't see yeah, that on a policy a polling swing. question in four yeah. years. And it may be that by adding the clarification of helping people understand what a refugee is, we helped. It may be that more people have heard about this at church. In fact, our study, compared to a previous study that World Relief did with LifeWay Research in 2015, it's been a pretty good j- jump in the number of evangelicals who say they've heard about this topic at church, which we are really pl- mm. made me feel a bit like I haven't been wasting my life for the last right. 10 years. <laughs> right, right. Because um, if it was so completely unmemorable that nobody remembered it, that mm. you know would be a bad sign. Yeah. Um, but the other factor, I think, if we're honest, is right now people hear refugees and they think about Ukrainians, they think about Afghans. Those are are the crises of the last year, Hmm. one with very close ties to the U.S. military. The other, I mean, you don't get worse of like a mega villain than Vladimir Putin. (laughs) Um, And and in a situation in Europe that I think a lot of Americans can look at and be like, wow, that's like this could happen to us. And there's a unique Hmm. sympathy, whether there should be or not. I don't know that we should have any more sympathy for Ukrainians than for Congolese or for Syrians who are frankly fleeing the same Russian bombs in some cases. Mm But back in 2015 and 2016, 2017, it was the Syrian crisis that was largely in the news. And there was a lot of inaccurate information about Mm -hmm. that situation. Mm -hmm. Um, And frankly, even, I mean, I remember the day that the public opinion turned. It was when there was a terrorist attack in Paris. And it wasn't, it turned out, perpetrated by Syrians. There's no evidence at this point whatsoever. They were European nationals, French and Belgian Mm -hmm. citizens. But all it took was rumors. And within a few days, we had governors of most states in the United States saying, we don't want Syrian refugees in our state. Mm. And that, I mean, frankly, it was really, in our ministry, we were receiving relatively small numbers of Syrians who were being admitted to the United States at the time. But we had to ask questions like, wow, should we be resettling someone into a state where the governor says they're not welcome? Mm-hmm. Of course, there's still plenty of local churches that said, yes, yeah, we, we want to welcome them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we want them to know that we're Christians. And a few Syrians are Christians, and they're actually persecuted for their faith. Mm-hmm. Um, but most were Muslim, certainly. Mm-hmm. And that's another part of the biblical perspective on this, is we see that as an incredible opportunity. You know, we have this great commission to go make disciples of all nations. Acts 1 tells us that that starts in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Sometimes I think it's easier to get American Christians to think about the ends of the earth, or at least to write a check for the ends of the earth, (laughs) than to think about the people in their own community Mm -hmm. who might have come from the ends of the earth but are now living in your own community, might already know Jesus, plenty of refugees do, and might have a very vibrant Christian faith, but might not. And yet, if it's not the church that's going to be the people to meet them at the airport, to love them as our neighbors, we're forfeiting that opportunity to to live out the Great Commission. And to be really clear, not in a proselytism sense. We don't trick anyone to following Jesus. No, right. We don't say Which is we'll not serve the gospel better. one bit. No, it's not. I mean, we, as an organization, we have a very high value on religious freedom. For us, but also for other people. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you can't say it's only for us and not for other people. We don't mm-hmm. want to coerce anyone into faith of any sort. Because, frankly, our view of missiology is that wasn't real faith if we 
tricked you into praying a prayer so you could get a right. you know, reduced rent or something. Mm -hmm. You didn't encounter Jesus there. Yeah. Um, we want people to make that choice for themselves, but we do want people to know Jesus. And we found that that happens uh, most often when people are loved well and consistently and frankly, not slandered yeah. by American yeah, Christians. Right, right. It's, they can go both ways. It could be an incredible, you know, fragrant aroma, as the Apostle Paul writes about, for people who don't yet know Jesus when they're loved well by the church. And it can be a huge turnoff when their impression of Christians are those of the people who are afraid of us and said terrible things about us that are not true. Mm -hmm. So it is incredible. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I'm just trying to remember from your talk. Like, I, I thought it was a, just an amazing testimony. What It's like something around 86% was of uh, immigrants who come here are either well, and correct me where I'm wrong on this or we're either Christians coming in or have or will be yeah so that stats um, I, I, I borrowed that from Tim Tennant who's the president at Asbury Seminary that's okay he was a prof of mine at Gordon Conwell all right that great guy a very good guy and yes. again and it's kind of notoriously difficult to measure faith so you're looking at sure. self-identification here of different Christian traditions yeah. but his stat and it's a few years old but not too old and it is North America so it includes Canada as well as the US mm -hmm. I believe uh, but it's 86% of the immigrant population in North America are likely to either be Christians or become Christians is wow. the way he's uh, assessed it. Again, you can get changes on the margins there. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, and that is, and again, I don't know how it breaks down. There's certainly a lot. The majority of immigrants come in and they say they're of some Christian tradition, Protestant, right. Catholic, yeah. Orthodox. Um, and many of them, at least, you know, I can't speak to all, but many of them clearly have a very vibrant Christian faith. Mm -hmm. Others come in and they would not say they're Christians, but within a few years or sometimes a few decades, a relationship they've formed in the U.S. has helped lead them to faith in Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was talking with a coworker over in um, in the Triad area today. He's Bhutanese. He and a whole people group that was forced out of Bhutan in the early 1990s. They lived in refugee camps in Nepal for ten to twenty years in most cases. Wow. Most of them were Hindu, pushed out by Buddhist government mm -hmm. in Nepal. There's some Buddhists and there's some who are already Christians, but very few. Many of them actually came to faith in the camps in Nepal, and many others have come to faith since being resettled, starting around 2008 or so in the United States. More than 100,000 Bhutanese refugees in this particular ethnic minority group were resettled around the United States in the last 12 or 14 years or so. Um, and amazing. Of, That's huge. I don't think we have statistics on how many of them are Christians now, mm -hmm. um, but it's certainly a sizable share of them have encountered Christ either in that camp or after yeah. landing in the United States um, and being in relationship with people who welcome them from local churches, um, including Bhutanese churches. You know, like yeah. we've seen some yeah. really beautiful like church plants that are worshiping um, in Nepali mm -hmm. and, and adapting you know, some of the music and those other, my, my, my colleague, Don is both a works for world relief. He's also a pastor and he's a worship leader. You know, yeah. you can go look him up on YouTube and he's like got people all over the world listening to his Christian worship music in Nepali. Um, but you know, those are the stories that to me are really exciting. And I think mm. most Christians hear immigration and they think of a picture of the Southern border that they saw on right. television, right? which is true. And they're partially true. It's sometimes stock photos from 20 years ago, but um, <laughs> like there are dynamics at the border. I've never known the news to not say all the truth. The, I mean, no, there's just nuggets, just nuggets of truth there. Well, it's a slice, it's of, some, a slice yeah. of a story. And that's, I think that's one of the hard things about um, allowing the media to disciple us, allowing yes. the media to, to help us determine our worldview, yes. is that we're only ever getting a slice of the story. We're getting the slice that the editor or the editorial team want. And it's it's actually great when you know where a, where a, a team is coming from, because yes. then you can grit it. But 
If you're watching the news on television and you're seeing a two-minute story, you're going to see six pictures, you're going to hear four sound bites, you're not really getting the nuanced picture. No. You're getting something, and, it, and there may be nuggets of truth in it. There may be also an angle. There may be deception. Uh, yeah. But, yeah. And that's there, why there's so much more than the southern border. Absolutely. And, and the southern border is important. We're not it really minimizing is, that. But, but, it's but it's also what we story. hear on the news isn't everything about right. it. And we can get to that as well. But, I mean, I would just say, I mentioned this Lifeway Research poll. Yeah. Um, the good news, I guess it's good news, is the share of evangelical Christians who say the Bible is the top factor influencing their views on immigration has gone from 12% to 20%. Okay. That's progress. Actually, significant progress. Well, that's 60% and ye, more. <laughs> and yet it is still one in five evangelical yeah, Christians we'll who kind of, of by definition, are supposed to say the Bible is my top authority for everything. Mm -hmm. And it's less than those who said the media. Mm -hmm. By self, like, they didn't even know the right answer was the Bible. You know, like, mm -hmm. you think, like, even if it wasn't true, yeah. people might think, oh, I'm a Christian. I guess I should check the Bible. But people are acknowledging, actually, what really informs my views is the media. Not in all cases, but in a lot, for a lot of evangelical Christians. And that... You know, depending on what media you're consuming, you got a very rosy picture, all immigrants are angels, or you got a very dark picture that all immigrants are devils, and neither is the true story. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit more complex yeah, than yeah, that. You're dealing with complex. human beings who are both made in the image of God and fallen, sinful creatures, just like every one of us. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that media tends to make a kind of simplistic picture of a really complicated, nuanced issue. Mm -hmm. And the church has to have the, the prudence and wisdom to say, we need to, you know, take a step back, mm -hmm. really do our homework to understand who we're talking about, mm -hmm. and first and foremost, look at these people as people made in the image of God, for whom Jesus died, um, who should be subject to governing authorities, just like the rest of us. That's sure, a biblical right. principle as well. Appreciate that about. And that. we can bring all those pieces together, mm -hmm. and it doesn't mean the same outcome for every immigrant. Right. Um, but it does start with that place of what does the Bible say about who these people are? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, Imago Dei, created in the image of God. That just solves a lot of problems. When, when I put those lenses on, it just solves a lot of problems on my street, in my town, yeah. and in public policy. Like, humans have dignity. Yeah. And we, we get it in the abortion question. Yeah, as we, we get should. it in the pre yeah. yeah, 100%. And I think a lot of Christians get it in uh, also the question of immigrants, refugees, and that stuff. Um, and we... we when we see every person with the dignity that God has imparted to them yeah. by virtue of his creation of them, it just changes everything. It doesn't mean you, you have to... Well, and then this, this then gets to policy. Mm -hmm. Because at least now when I'm looking at someone uh, differently, then the policies can change. Uh, and we can advocate for different things. And, and that's what I love about the six things that you guys talk about, World Relief and the Evangelical Immigration Table. You all put your cards on the table. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I love. And the six things you talk about is dignity of the person as well as um, rule of law or a legal framework that, that is uniform and just for everyone. Because I don't think anybody wants... Two, um, two classes of people. We said yeah. this when Hunter was on the podcast. Like to me, when, I'm just going to use an example. When Congress made Obamacare for everyone and a different health care for them, <laughs> you hate that. We yeah. all hate that. Why do we hate that? Because we don't want two classes of people. Yeah. We believe in one class of people. Well, I think you go that exact same feeling. You go to, well, if there's citizens and then there's a group who's in a holding pattern that can never be citizens, to me, that just means they can always be taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. they're, they're susceptible to being exploited and oppressed. And I don't want that a mile and a half from our church right. in a little pocket that I don't know about. Right. 
And I mean, honestly, in a more rural community, like the agricultural sector is a great example of that. I mean, the whether people know it or not, and some people know it very well, and some people don't want to know it, but as you know, most of farm workers in the United States are undocumented immigrants. Absolutely. They're yeah. not lawfully present in the country. Yeah. Um, some of them are treated really well mm-hmm. by the farmers that employ them. Mm-hmm. Some of them are yeah, really mistreated right. by farmers who employ them because they can because they're desperate for a job and, they, and only a few sectors of our economy will hire you without work authorization. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, whether we know it or not, we're all benefiting when we eat. Most no, of and us that's exactly don't right. grow our own food. And mm-hmm. so we're all a little bit implicated in this. And frankly, that's part of why, I mean, sometimes people, the idea is, well, let's just deport everyone who's here unlawfully. Right. Nobody's very serious about doing that. We've had, you know, Republicans and Democrats as president. None of them have tried to do that. Why? Because nobody wants to govern over destroying the U.S. economy and we don't <laughs> have right. food. Yeah, everybody. But there's also then it's what a we've sound said. soundbite. It's not a policy. Yeah. What we've said at World Relief and, and our partners with the Evangelical Migration Table for a long time is, look, we have to somehow find a way to honor the law mm-hmm. because Romans 13 tells us God has established government. We can't have, an, we can't have anarchy. We can't have no right, no 100%. order. And yet we're not going to, and we would argue we shouldn't, because we want to keep families together and be humane, split up families and deport 11 million people. So what's the way to both honor the law and be compassionate? And we've said, well, those people who are here unlawfully should come forward, uh, pay a fine. There's an actual consequence, and not a 50-cent fine, but like a, you know, we can let Congress figure out a significant but not unreasonable fine. Right. Uh, as a penalty for having violated an immigration law. And by the way, whether that was crossing the border unlawfully or the half of those people who came in on a temporary visa and just overstayed overstayed it. it. We don't tend to have the same sort of um, disdain for people who broke the law in that way for whatever reason. Well, because they're picking our food. Yeah, in some cases. They came in on a temporary worker visa and didn't go back. Mm -hmm. Although plenty of those people came in unlawfully too. I mean, it's Right, right, right. Um, So let them pay a fine. Let them get a probationary legal status where they can show that they're working, they're paying taxes, they're meeting other requirements. And then eventually... They meet the threshold for permanent legal status, and from there, if they want to, they can pursue citizenship. So it's not a, some people talk about a path to citizenship. It's not a three skips down the sidewalk to citizenship. It's right. a rigorous it's path. It's a longer journey. But it's also not a permanent subclass of people who That's can never what I fear. That's what I fear. Yeah. I, I don't think that gives us any help as a culture. Um, when, when he said at lunch, he said amnesty, you know, and that's the, when nobody, you said, we do not believe in amnesty uh, you know, it's like the Greek word for amnesia. Mm-hmm. I'm like, man, I never, yeah, <laughs> I never. And that's where that. we think there's a really important <laughs> distinction mm-hmm. ethically from a policy that says you're here unlawfully. We're acknowledging that violation of law, and here's a penalty. Sure, if you also killed someone, well, if you ever get out of jail, you'll be deported. Mm-hmm. But if your only violation of law was 40 years ago, you crossed the border. How about you pay a few thousand dollars mm-hmm. as a penalty, and then meet other requirements? You can apply for permanent legal status. Um, that's not forgetting that there was an offensive law. Right. Uh, the, and we think that that's an important distinction. You're affirming that the law matters, but if you're going to stand on the law matters, well, a fair question is, well, what is an appropriate penalty? Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah it's just not really, even if you think the only fair penalty is sending everyone back, well, nobody's going to do that. We've had yeah, decades to not do that. You're right. You're right. And, and I would also argue we're all a little bit complicit in this messed up system because we benefit from immigrant slavery, from... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our, our government, their hands are not clean on this. Mm-hmm. Those un- unauthorized immigrants, in about 50% of cases, are paying into Social Security mm-hmm. with a fake Social mm-hmm. Security card. Right. Not a stolen Social Security card, but an invented one. So the Social Security Administration knows very well when they receive money from a number that doesn't exist in their system, which, by the way, if you looked at your 
your social security card. It looks like it was made with blue construction paper and a typewriter. Oh, it's true. Yeah. Like we could come up with a we more secure document in 2022 if we wanted to make sure that nobody was working without just, authorization. Just like my little vaccine passport. I'm like, really? You're you're saying this is going to save the world? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, anyway, we, we could come up with something more secure, but but we don't have the national interest to do so, right? Because those people are paying into social security. Then when they work for 40 years, they go turn 65 or whatever. They can't take that bogus social security card and say, "I'd like my retirement benefit." They'll get laughed at. Um, so it's an, I, I think, an unjust part of our system, but ironic that unauthorized immigrants who are working unlawfully are subsidizing the social security system for my parents and right. for other people who paid into right. social security a generation earlier, to the tune of like twelve billion dollars a year well, from numbers that don't match the names on the card. Isn't that amazing? And that's from the Social Security Administration. Our federal government is not, you know, this isn't outside experts looking no. at it. It's our own government that's saying own this government is how much money it. comes from numbers that don't match the name on the card that we don't yeah. send back. What I like about restitution-based mm -hmm. pathway or, or journey, not amnesty saying the law doesn't matter, you're here now, we're just going to wink and nudge and move, but it's restitution-based saying, yes, law matters, Yes. and those who are here lawfully matter, and those who were born here matter, and we value that, um, but we're not going to hold you in a, in a, in a cell forever. Like yeah. you, you can come, but here's the fine, and, and yeah. if it's five or 10,000 bucks or whatever you're saying. Uh, that would be uh, that would be interesting how to calculate the fine and, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm, we don't have to talk about that today. But you know I'm an immigrant and I'm legal. Mm -hmm. I was sponsored by my wife. We got married. I got I mean I came as a student mm -hmm. and I could not work off campus. So I came for grad school, which was seminary, mm -hmm. and so I couldn't work off campus uh, unless I was working in my field of study. So if mm -hmm. I wanted to serve in a church, I could. If I wanted to work in a Starbucks, I couldn't. Mm -hmm. I, um, Even if you were evangelizing, I guess Starbucks wouldn't <laughs> let you do that. But <laughs> no. but seriously, so I changed light bulbs in uh -huh. the academic center after hours. I washed dishes in the cafeteria after hours with all the other immigrants. Yeah, it was really a lot of fun, and um, and they were very they were very kind to me because I don't look like someone from Kenya, and I certainly don't run like someone from <laughs> Kenya. But uh, they were good to me. Um, but a restitution base because it matters. The rule of law matters, and I think when I heard that from Hunter when, mm -hmm. when she and I were talking. And I was like, oh, these people are serious. Because I feel like sometimes any conversation about immigration is going to be like there's a Trojan horse where anyone who tends conservative politically is going to end up feeling bad. Like, I definitely am conservative politically. And, and I'm not always right. Like, I'm still learning, you know. But, but, and, but, I, but I'm, I'm smart enough to know that the conservatives don't have all the answers on all the issues. Mm -hmm. But I just tend there generally. Yeah. Free markets, free people, you get better stuff. Yeah. You get a better quality of life in, in general. Um, but when there's no rule of law, we're messed. Yeah. Well, and when there's, an, when there's too much law, we're messed. Yeah. Well, and you know, the interesting thing is when World Relief first took a position uh, on a comprehensive immigration reform, which is basically that restitution-based reform, like, yes, yeah. there should be a penalty and let people earn, earn permanent legal status and eventual citizenship. And by the way, paired with, we've got to secure the border, secure the borders. You make talk it about harder that. to immigrate illegally, and make it easier to immigrate legally. A lot of the people That's who come it. unlawfully would be thrilled to come on a visa on an airplane yeah. if you give them that option. And yeah. frankly, especially when we have literally 5 million more jobs in this national economy than we have people looking for work, why wouldn't we do more of that? Yeah. But all that to say, we took that position. Why don't relief. they? Why don't they? Why don't they solve this in Washington? What's your best guess on that? I mean, the history is really interesting. I mean, I haven't been around the entire history, but the last time <laughs> we, we like did a really significant immigration reform in the United States was 1986. Mm -hmm. I was a small child. Um, President Reagan was in office. Uh, President Bush, George H.W. Bush, did a few more 
edits the 1990s, some positive reforms, I think. Um, I think part of the challenge, I mean, we saw President George W. Bush in 2006 push pretty hard on this. Hmm. And he got it. I mean, he helped, there was a bill that went through the U.S. Senate with pretty significant bipartisan support that really was along the lines of what we had endorsed the world relief. It was mm. a b- bunch of money for border security, a bunch of new visas to really put the visa system that hasn't been updated since 1990 in line with the needs of the U.S. labor market, and uh, an earned legalization program. I don't remember what the fine was, but it was, right. I think it was 13, 12 years before someone would go from, you get a temporary legal status, that would be the process to get citizenship right. if you wanted to pursue that. Um, it passed the Senate, but never the House. So that's the way our system works. It's not law. President Obama actually tried a very similar thing. And there were four Republicans in the Senate and four Democrats who worked together. Both made some, you know, there was some give and take. It was $45 billion for border security, if I'm not mistaken. So we had a lot of debate in the last few years about a wall that might cost $25 billion. Mm-hmm. That was on the 45. table in 2013. Mm-hmm. Passed the Senate with a lot of both Republican and Democrat votes. Actually, had all the Democrat votes, but a good number of Republicans as well. And then it never went anywhere in the House of Representatives. And mm. I think often what, what I've heard from, I, mean, I get to interact with members of Congress on this sometimes, I think more of them would like this to pass than can say that in public. And they're often afraid of their voters. And they're afraid, often, the, it's really interesting, the polling on these questions, this poll we also asked about immigration policy, um, more than 70% of evangelical Christians say they would support legislation that provided an earned path to citizenship with the payment mm-hmm. of a fine mm-hmm. with improvements to border security. Right. Pair those things together. I mean, gosh, we can't get three out of four evangelical Christians to affirm some Agree on anything. Core theological who tenets. Jesus is. Yeah, like, <laughs> um, we should work on that, clearly. Um, yes. But, like, that's pretty good agreement. Wow. And that's just one usually fairly conservative constituency that the results are similar if you poll, you know, other religious groups or Democrats or Republicans. So it seems like, gosh, why couldn't the Congress just get together and do this? Um, or even, like, lower-hanging fruit. Like, there's a bill in the Congress right now through the House in front of the Senate that would basically do those things, but just for the agricultural sector. So just for farm mm, workers. Yeah. In part because we have soaring grocery bills that the people yeah. in D.C. who are smart know is in part because of a labor shortage with people not, there's just not enough people to hire to pick crops who have legal status. Mm-hmm. You pair that with some improvements to the border situation, which is not just money for border security, but also fixing our asylum process, which right now it takes four plus years to get a a hearing from an immigration judge, which is both unfair to those who genuinely qualify, and a lot of the Venezuelans coming will qualify. Oh, yeah. Uh, It's also, it's an unhelpful incentive to come even if you've got a marginal case, when you might get three or four years waiting in the United States to get a decision. And I understand why people living in desperate poverty would make that choice. They're also given inaccurate information from smugglers who have an incentive to have them come. And yet, that's not what the asylum process is for. It's for those fleeing persecution. Um, so we should have a more efficient process. There's a bill, and actually here in North Carolina, Senator Tillis is a co-sponsor, which we've been grateful for at World Relief, um, that would dramatically increase asylum adjudication. I think if you pair those pieces together, one of which appeals a little bit more to Republicans, one a little bit more to Democrats, because and maybe with something like the, the Dreamers, these immigrants who brought us children, actually very popular among both Republicans and Democrats. Mm-hmm. To me, that's yep. like, it shouldn't be impossible to get 60 votes in the U.S. Senate on that. And I don't care which, how many of those are Republicans or how many Democrats, yeah. but it's going to need to be some of both. It's going to be some of both the way it's set up right now. And I mean, that's what we've been saying at World Relief. You guys and gals, your job is to figure out the details and find the consensus. But kind of punting on, well, maybe the next Congress will deal with this, is how we've gotten into this mess for literally my entire lifetime. 
Yeah, not really because '86. I was three years old. But like, it's been a well, long time. Well, in order for them to address it in '86, it means that there was there was difficulties for the previous five yes. or seven or ten yes. years. So, and I think um, it, I mean it was President Reagan who was a fairly conservative president who mm-hmm. signed that bill and championed signed that bill. bill. Um, and it didn't used to be as much of a partisan issue as it has kind of become in recent years. Mm-hmm. Even going back to President Bush, it was less of a partisan issue then. Yeah. Which, you know, we're an evangelical Christian organization. We're not partisan. So we're, I'm not saying right. we're all Republicans right. or all Democrats. But <laughs> we would very much prefer for it to not be a partisan issue. Yeah, that's true. You can get more, more stuff done when you're, when you're not sort of screaming to your base. Yeah. And, and that is mm-hmm. maybe one of the problems in Washington why they don't get it all done. Mm-hmm. is because there's, there's the, the 24-hour news cycle screaming to your base. Yeah. But the um, the folks that have, you know, it's like making sausage. You just yeah. don't want to see how bills are made. Like, well, and the cynic in me it. thinks... Well, what would you scare people with if you actually solve this? You know, like, I mean, like, I mean, you know, the like, cynic in you. I thought you said the Senate. No, I'm unfortunately not in the Senate. Um, but in the Lord Palpatine voice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that. Well, it's a good point. There's pretty good solutions on the table with bipartisan support. Uh, and again, Senator Tillerson, North Carolina, has been on some of those. We'd love to get him on some of the others. Uh, but Senator Cinema, who's a Democrat from Arizona, she's on the same bill. Like, there's mm-hmm. people who are sitting down and saying, I may not love 100% of this, but this would yeah. improve the status quo. And yet, if you solve that issue, what are they going to talk about on certain cable news channels? And, you know, are you going to sell advertisements? And, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe that's overly cynical. But uh, I'm really grateful when we do see elected officials not just doing stunts to you know, make a point, but actually saying, what could we do that would change the situation for the good of the country and for the good of some really vulnerable people who mm-hmm. are preyed upon by cartels and yeah. organized crime and who are only fleeing because in the first place, they're fleeing the likes of Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela right. and the horrible government in Cuba and gang violence in Honduras and El Salvador. Mm-hmm. And they may or may not all qualify for asylum, but they're all people made in God's image. Nobody makes these trips casually. like. You know, I'm just gonna walk across Mexico. Well, well listen, it seems like a good that, idea. Yeah. If you are looking at the the composite picture portrait of someone you want to build the next generation on, how about someone who gets up out of their village and walks a thousand miles, taking a risk, not knowing but wanting to make something better? To me, I'm like, this is who you want. You know, this is exactly who you want. Well, and that's the fascinating thing. Economists have made this observation that, like, you know, if you look at Mexican immigrants in the United States, they are not a representative subsample. Of Mexicans in Mexico, right? They're the people They're the, who, when like faced the cream with incredible the hardship, said, "Well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit here and die. I'm going to get up and make something." Sometimes violating some laws in the process. I mean, yeah. I'm, not dis- I'm not dismissing that or, or, or condoning that. But it actually, their motivations weren't bad. Very few of the people right. crossing the border, it's to do anyone harm. It's right. usually, my family's not going to sit and die. We're yeah. going to survive. Yeah, and it true. turns out the people who have that grit start businesses, and they do survive in the United States, end up employing other people. I mean, and you know, not all people who came unlawfully, plenty of people came lawfully, but almost half the, com- the Fortune 500 companies in this country were founded by an immigrant or their yeah. child. That was an unbelievable statistic. I mean, we wouldn't be the United States of America that we all know today with our number one economy in the world if it wasn't for our country's legacy of seeing immigration not as just a charitable thing that we do, but as a way to build our country and our economy. It's called venture capital. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's, like to me, every dollar you spend on getting the immigration right is venture capital. Yeah. Because you're, you're gonna see that benefit. It might take 10 or 20 years in terms of, like you say, uh, every immigrant who comes 
after 15 years or 10 years actually contributes more than they, you know, it's on like the net. 20. It's not everyone. So you, yeah, you know, no, no, no. Like, but on the net, you put the them net all effect, together. Yeah. I mean, it, it was venture capital. It's, like we're, yeah. we're investing in the future of our country. I, I've had that people have asked like, you know, we have homeless people, we have veterans and how can we help refugees from other countries when we have those situations? And I would argue that from a Christian perspective, we absolutely should care for the homeless and mm -hmm. veterans, but it's hard mm -hmm. to say we should not care for others because of where they were born Christ, from a Christian perspective. But even if you're just looking from a national interest perspective, who do you think is paying the taxes that cover the social services costs for those veterans who came 30 years ago? A lot of them are immigrants who came 20 years ago who are now net contributors, right. who are paying in right. more than they have ever received out. Mm -hmm. And that's true whether you look at refugees specifically, and there's good economic research on that. It's uh, almost certainly true with immigrants more generally as well. And maybe skewed by a few particularly successful refugees, like the guy who started Google and has paid a lot of taxes, mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. also by people who oh, started small businesses and, you know, <clears throat> they're... They're making ends meet. They're on the net, paying a little bit more than they receive. But it takes them a few years to get to that point, which should not mm -hmm. surprise any of us if we were dropped halfway around the world with a different language and able to figure things out. <laughs> it might take us a little bit. Again, some of us, I, I might just sit down and die. Can we you start know, making like... trades? <laughs> like maybe, you know, my lazy nephew who doesn't do anything. We trade him. No, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. I don't He's have a He's made in the image nephew. of God also. Um, but... <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, we better wind this one up. Ben, do you have a last question or a last observation? Because I'm looking at the clock here and... Uh, I mean, I just, I respect World Relief so much just from getting to like learn more about you in the last couple of months, just, uh, I mean, talking with you and, and just a couple others. But one, one of the things I, I love, it's really two things was the first one is how well you guys do seem to really hold that, uh, like how do we be faithful to the law and hold that, but also like love people well and, and care about people and be able to navigate those. Being in the middle ground is often where Jesus does the greatest work, mm -hmm. uh, but it's so much, har much harder work because it's so much easier to just kind of jump to one side. Uh, but the other thing was, I love that, like you guys kind of look at this national problem that for me seems overwhelming. And I'm like, I, I, can't, do, I, I can't do anything about that. Like I, I, I barely make it to the polls when I'm supposed mm -hmm. to. Uh, but you help reduce it and expand it for me to not just a national problem, but like a, a personal, a family, a church opportunity, mm -hmm. like to be able to invest in and, and make a difference in lives that I have no business or would have had no business ever being able to be a part in. Like, remember in, in our lunch, you were talking about how all of these people coming into, uh, into the U.S., I mean, from countries that we'll probably we're barely ever send missionaries to. Mm -hmm. And it's so eye-opening to me because it's like the Lord is... I think of missions as like so often going out, right? Mm -hmm. Like we go to the DR, I'm like, okay, how do we do that? But the Lord is bringing them to our doorstep and what an opportunity. And it's not just something that, again, we vote, vote this way and we can fix it or vote that way and we'll fix it. But like we personally can make a difference in yeah. it. We as a church, and I love that like that's so much of y'all's posture and your heart yeah. for it. You know, I have very strong opinions about policies because I see the people yeah. who it impacts. But I think it is important to know like at World Relief, we have like, 3.5 staff nationally <laughs> focused on <laughs> policy and advocacy. Um, the vast majority of our work is how do we help this family they just arrived at the airport yeah. um, yep. or got bused to Chicago and they showed up at Union Station. How do we help connect them to a church, make sure that they've got a place, you know, a meal and a, a place to sleep for the night and then eventually, you know, help them apply for legal status or apply for work authorization. The refugees come in with that already, which is easier, help them find a right. job. Um, 
most of the work we do is working with local churches to actually meet human needs in the name of Jesus. And we do see people, when they're loved well by the local church, they end up you know, asking questions about who Jesus is, why we do the work that we do. Yeah. And we get to it, First Peter 3 says, to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's within you. Yeah. Uh, the policy questions come later. Out of that, you know, I think of it sort of as uh, Martin Luther King Jr. once kind of elaborated on the story of the Good Samaritan. He said, of course, if you see a guy beaten up on the side of the road to Jericho, and this is a paraphrase, you should help him. But if the next day someone else is beaten up on the side of the road to Jericho, and the next day someone else is beat up on the side of the road to Jericho, at a certain point, loving your neighbor means asking the question of, what's wrong with that road? Hmm. And I think that's, that's not always the way that we think, especially as evangelicals, we tend to have a very individual sort of approach, which is important. We gotta help individuals. Yeah. But also when there's our systems that are dysfunctional, we have, you know, we talk about being subject to governing authorities. As a US citizen, my governing authorities invite me to speak into that process. Right. Um, we the that's people a, democracy. A, a huge blessing that wasn't true for the church in Rome when they mm-hmm. were receiving yep. those words, but it is yep. true for us. And that's as simple as, you know, I can write a member write a letter to my senator. I, I've had a chance to meet with some of my senators and say, hey, and I'm more likely to get that meeting when a bunch of church pastors join me because they're community leaders who are important influencers. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, you know, not to say vote Republicans, vote Democrats, but to say here's some biblical principles that we want Republicans and Democrats and everybody else to apply as they think about these important national questions. Mm-hmm. Well, Matt, thank you so much. I mean, this is great. And, and you're right. It's when you meet the person in front of you with the love of Jesus, the words of Jesus, they then start asking you questions because they haven't met that from someone mm-hmm. else. Yeah. Uh, or, which we don't have time to go into, but what you said or what we talked about earlier is that a lot of times they already do know Jesus and they'll bless you. Absolutely. Um, but thank you for helping us see uh, refugees around the world, immigrants here uh, on a personal level, also on a policy level. And um, starting with Scripture, working outwards from there, uh, really, we really appreciate your time. Yeah, so happy to be here. Well, thank you, Ben. Always good to be with you and everyone in the listening community. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll see you back here the next time. This is a ministry of Grace Fellowship Church in Kinston, North Carolina. Visit gracekinston.org or follow us on Facebook and Instagram.